Here's how two friends are bringing in up to 20 grand a month, helping people make decisions. What's up? What's up, Nick? Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because a year from now, you're going to wish you started today. It's our last episode of 2019. Hopefully, it's been a year filled with progress for you. Hopefully, you're in a better place now than you were 12 months ago. That is certainly the case for my guests today who have taken their little side hustle project from zero to up to 20 grand a month in revenue during that time. Alex Goldberg and Healy Jones run a site called Finn versus Finn.com, which focuses on reviews and comparisons of direct-to-consumer brands and earns money as an affiliate, basically commissions on sales that are referred through the site. I think Finn versus Finn is an example of what I'm going to call the modern comparison shopping site, helping readers make decisions and getting paid for it. And since comparison shopping was my original side hustle over a decade ago, this one was especially fun to dive into. Stick around to hear how Alex and Healy prioritize and create their content, what they're doing to market the site and drive traffic, and how you can borrow some of their same strategies in your own niche. Notes and links for this one, plus the free PDF highlight reel summary with all of Alex and Healy's top tips from the call are at sidehustlenation.com slash fin, F-I-N. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Alex and Healy after the interview. Alex is going to be the first voice that you hear. Ready? Let's do it. I think probably the first one that got, got, got traction was a comparison between men's wellness brands like Roman and Keeps and Hymns. Obviously, they're, they're almost like household names at this point, and they've spent a lot of money advertising and, and building out their brand awareness. But at the time, they were pretty unheard of or, or pretty early to the game. And our initial goal in, in starting the website together was just wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could generate $5,000 a year in passive income? Did you run the numbers for, for last month? I'm curious where you're at. Yeah, we, we sort of hover between 17 and 20K a month at this point. For a month, not per year. So your initial goal was five grand a year, and now you're doing several times that every month. Yeah, we just kind of exploded past it. And, and now we, we take it a lot more seriously, but we joke all the time that we should have been more ambitious from the onset. We, we joke about that a lot, actually. It's really funny. I remember the first $10 we made, we were texting each other like crazy how excited we were. That's where it starts. That's, you hear that, a version of that over and over again. Oh, I got my first, you know, 11 cents from an AdSense click. It, it shows you that it's possible. Like, hey, someone found this website, someone clicked on my thing, someone bought the product, and all of a sudden it becomes real. And that is so incredibly motivating to keep going. It's a little addictive, actually. I think I think Alex responded like, "That's the best ten dollars I've ever made." <laughs> Something like that. It, it was the hardest ten dollars I've ever made, but for sure the most exciting. I've had other people who kind of share that with me too. Like, it's more exciting to make five dollars passively or quote passively than it was to make five thousand dollars trading time for money. So I can definitely relate to that. So starting out with these Roman versus Keeps versus Hymns, this is like these are like hair loss prevention products. Yeah, they actually now have expanded their product line to offer quite a few different telemedicine services beyond just kind of prescriptions for hair loss. But that is where they started was in the hair loss realm. Healy and I just happened to both be losing our hair. And so maybe that's why it popped up on our radar early on. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say that that ship has already sailed for me. I guess we're disclosing that here, but (laughs) (laughs) that might be an overshare. I think that's all right. But I mean, the good news is that these products actually work. And they're legit. It's not like they're snake oil. These are real FDA generics. And I think that is a pretty cool 
thing that they're doing. So that's some of the initial content is kind of writing these comparison posts. And it sounds like from perhaps testing these products yourselves, what is the content strategy like? I mean, are you testing all three of these at once? Like, This seems really difficult to try and write and keep track of. So one of the things that I do kind of in my day job is I track a lot of venture capital investments. And there are free resources that you can subscribe to, like CB Insights or like PE Hub will send like a daily email that's free. And you see who's raising funding. And when I see a direct-to-consumer company raise funding that I think is interesting, I put it into our new idea Slack channel. And that's where Alex and I know to start to try to pay attention to these companies. And so what we're looking for is direct-to-consumer brand that's in a space that feels like it's pretty big and feels like a space that can monetize pretty well. Yeah. And, and Nick, to your point about sort of trying every product, in some cases, we have tried every brand, say that we're comparing. In others, it wouldn't be feasible. As we move into, say, female wellness, a lot of the products aren't suited for Healy or I. And so I think a lot of people, a lot of readers, a lot of consumers may have a visceral reaction to reviews from people who haven't tried the product. How can you really review or, or recommend a product that you haven't tried? So I guess we sort of push back against that notion and say, actually, just one person's anecdote isn't really that telling. It may be interesting to read about and it may be informative on some level, but everybody's body is different. Everybody's preferences are different. So we always try and, and have the writer of our articles be of the right perspective. So if it's, a, if it's a product for women, we always will have a woman write that post. But it doesn't necessarily mean that she has tried it or that we have tried the ones that we're writing about. Our strategy is really to instead offer a more objective view of the products by really representing or, or demonstrating all of the information that's available online that's going to help a consumer make the right choice for them and make it really easy to digest. Also potentially give a sense of, of what others are saying online about that brand, but sort of in aggregate, not, not just one loud voice over the rest. And in general, we find that people really appreciate that, that approach and don't get a lot of pushback around people being upset about us not sharing our own personal anecdotes. Right. When it comes to affiliate reviews, it, it can go either way, right? Here's the in-depth review, my personal experience with this product, or like we had a guy who had a mattress review blog and he's like, I can't possibly sleep on all these mattresses. So what he was doing instead was kind of aggregating some of the common feedback about these reviews and putting together his kind of like roundup take on these. Like if you have a bad back, these are the things to be on the lookout for. And that was kind of how he went about adding value without having, without having slept on this thing for a hundred nights to come up with his personal opinion of it. Yeah. I mean, I think in the telemedicine medicine space, there are particular comparisons that consumers should want to know about before they try one of these medicines. And in particular, comparing things like side effects, we can pretty nicely write up the side effects. We can go to the medical journals and read the abstracts and download the tables and compare the percent of patients who have side effects and things like that. And we can lay all that out. And that's information that you would do if you were a super informed shopper. So putting that all into a structured place where a consumer can make a decision between two particular medicines to treat the same symptom offered by two companies, I think is really valuable. It's the work that you would probably do yourself if you wanted to be an informed consumer, but we've structured all that data in a way that's really easy to consume. Is it something you learn through trial and error or is it like from the get-go you like had the idea okay we're going to build out these kind of like structured data comparison tables 
So that's something that Alex and I have learned the hard way in other job marketing jobs. <laughs> so that's the structure I think is critical to helping people understand multiple choices. And there's another thing that likes that structure and it's called Google. Google just sucks up structured data. Yeah, Healy and I both had had SEO success with structuring tables and, and laying out information. I think it's it's a great UI, a great kind of user experience for people who are trying to make decisions and digest a lot of information. But as Healy mentioned, Google also really likes it. So we had sort of that trick up our sleeve, I guess, from the get-go. Just sort of candidly, we do pay attention to how people are consuming our our content, whether it's through heat maps or, or just deep dives into Google Analytics. And naturally, th- those visuals where all the data is laid out in a very structured and visual way uh, are tend to be where people spend a lot of time on our articles. So yeah, absolutely. I guess the strategy is just put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are shopping, ask all the questions that we would want to know if we were going to buy a particular product, and then aggregate all the public data that's available on the internet or, or maybe even through talking with brands and getting more insider information and putting that in a, into a table or into a structure that is really easy for people to digest. Well, let's dive into that for a second. So what kind of tools and tech are you using to, to build those tables? I know there's a bunch of different WordPress plugins, but curious what you guys are using. It's actually a very top of mind question for us right now, because up until this point, we've I have a, a just a tiny bit of experience with HTML and CSS and am able to kind of manipulate these tables. And, and once you get one looking the right way, it's pretty easy just to copy and paste that code and swap in. Like this is just a really funny thing is that at the job where we're working together, I would always be the guy that would like turn around and shout, Alex, I need help with the table. And, so, <laughs> and, and now I do that over Slack. <laughs> Yeah, so to this day, that, that remains our relationship. I, I am the table guy. Healy is, is very much putting together the ideas and, and coming up with the ideas for the table, and, and I'm still the one styling them. But, but as we scale and look to scale out the process even more and reinvest the money that we're making back into the business, I do think that there's probably a more scalable way to, to do that. We are starting to hire kind of outside design help and outside developer help. We haven't found a, a killer... WordPress plugin yet for the tables that's flexible enough to to sort of support what we what we want to do or support our style. But I'm sure that there are ones that will get you at least 85% of the way there if, if you're not comfortable with HTML or CSS. Okay, so you're kind of coding these yourself at this point? Yeah, or, or maybe, I mean, maybe the better way to think about it is, is coding it once and then sort of copying and pasting that code into new posts and, and making minor tweaks. One of the things I think is pretty important is we have a massive percent of our traffic that's mobile and our tables look good on mobile as well as on html and i'm not exactly sure what wizardry alex did to make that happen but that's i think something that's pretty important yeah i mean it goes without saying i think it's probably a trite tip at this point but mobile is is king mobile has officially surpassed desktop traffic so when you're thinking about making a a strong visual experience that's easy for for consumers to digest and learn from and especially make purchasing decisions about, then it does seem like potentially thinking about mobile first is is the way to go. Yeah, I know for me, it was a couple of years ago where the mobile traffic started to surpass the uh, desktop traffic, which is interesting because I interact with the site, Side Hustle Nation, at least almost entirely on the desktop version because it's like, that's what I'm working on all day. And it's like, that's not the experience that the majority of, of site visitors are having. So yeah, making sure that it looks good on mobile totally makes sense. I like this idea of kind of keeping a pulse on which companies are raising money because you know sooner or later down the road, they're going to be pumping some 
advertising dollars into brand awareness, into customer acquisition. And if you have one of the first or one of the most authoritative blog posts on that product, you're going to have a great chance of ranking on the first page of Google, kind of just by virtue of being first mover there. Do these companies have kind of off-the-shelf affiliate programs through Impact Radius or through Commission Junction? Or are you kind of approaching them and trying to cut deals directly? Some do and some don't. And so I would say that thing that has served us well is use LinkedIn to network into whoever the marketing manager or marketing director is at that startup and just politely keep asking them if you can get into an affiliate program or if they're interested in an affiliate relationship. A lot of these people don't have open affiliate programs or haven't started one. So if you can, that, that's a thing that I think is an advantage to us is just that we're politely persistent and we're starting to get pretty networked with these folks so we can just keep reaching out. As long as you're polite about it, they'll react and interact with you, even if the answer is no. You want to have a relationship with those folks. That I, I would say that if you're an affiliate site, you have two customers. One of them is that marketing manager and the other one is Google. And so you should really be very careful with those two customers. And the traffic is the product, right? So focus on making that manager happy, realize that their job and their bonus, and if they're a startup, even their company is somewhat dependent on the quality of what you're doing for them. Try to do a really good job and pay attention to their needs and get to know them. Yeah, I think I think that's a great question, Nick, because even if a brand does have a affiliate program that's out of the box through a share of sale or impact radius or one of the main networks, often that starting place is is really kind of short-lived. And so the minute you start driving some sales or or some actions that that brand cares about is absolutely the moment to start asking them for more or start building that relationship and trying to find out which numbers they really care about, how much their funnel can bear from a kind of a cost to acquire perspective and start to develop that relationship. The starting quotes or the starting cost per actions that they will give out of the box are usually extremely conservative. So as soon as you're able to show some value and really understand what what that channel means to them, if it's a real growth driver for them, if it's kind of an experiment for them, etc., the more you understand that, the better you can align your site or or the traffic that you're driving with their goals and and really establish some some strong partnerships. The other thing I'll say is is just that a lot of times, to Healy's point, they won't have a, an affiliate program, although it will be closed. And so we've had some cases where even some of our best partners today we had to reach out for six months plus before we we were accepted into their program before they even gave us the time of day. So it's kind of crazy, but just keep being persistent, keep trying to build relationships with the brands you want to work with. And sometimes they'll just admire that tenacity or, or they'll allow a first conversation and, and give you a shot that way. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. 
So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How are you prioritizing what to write about. I'm going through the blog archives here and there's a ton of content on the site. I mean, every post is really in-depth and there appear to be hundreds of those posts. Like, talk to me about the the content production process. (laughs) That's a good question and it continues to evolve. But I would say the first, I don't know what, 20 or 40, I don't know how many of the first, but that was just Alex or me writing stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the way to get started for sure. Don't spend money in the beginning unless you, you have like sort of a proven model. But yeah, Healy and I really pumped out a ton of content in the beginning. At this point, we we have a team of, of contract writers and, and they do a great job. I'd still say Healy and I, because our name's on it and, and maybe just because we're, it's our baby still, still do a fair amount of copy editing and, and making sure that the, the quality is high, but trying to outsource as much of the, the nitty gritty as possible at this point. Was there a point in terms of revenue where you started to hire writers and say, okay, I, I could see a return on this, so I'm comfortable making that investment? Yeah, I don't know if it was like a monthly number per se, but I think in our mind, we kind of figured out what it would cost to get these articles written. And then it was just kind of a, an incremental bet each time. Like, hey, do we think we can make the money back in this particular space with this particular payout and conversion rate? So it's kind of a fun little, I guess, speculative bet each time. But yeah, sort of getting comfortable with those economics. I don't know, probably, what would you say, Healy, maybe at like the the 5K a month mark, we felt really comfortable reinvesting back into the business? I think so. But I also think our growth is a little bit interesting because we kind of hit a hockey stick moment where we grew really fast. So there was kind of a moment where we're making like a thousand bucks a month and we're super pleased with ourselves. And then all of a sudden it kind of ballooned. And I think once that happened, we kind of looked at each other and like, okay, is this real or is this going to just fall off a cliff? And so we waited, we waited a little bit longer just to make sure that it was real because it didn't, it felt a little bit fantastic. What do you think attributed to the hockey stick? I think we got into a few programs that we hadn't been in before. And I think the amount of content in our site kind of spiked to the point where we had enough traffic and our hands in kind of enough different programs there that it went from being like one day, 10 bucks, the next day, a hundred bucks to pretty consistently, you know, like 500, 700 bucks a day. 
Yeah, I think it was it was joining a few key programs. And to Healy's point, we were kind of like, well, is this a reporting error? This is far exceeding our expectations <laughs> in terms of, of what we were making. And so it, it took us maybe a month or two of, of actually seeing that money come in before we thought, okay, potentially this is this is sustainable and scalable and we feel comfortable spending this money because it's actual it's actually real. There's obviously the the lag in payouts from the affiliate program. So you're sort of kind of waiting for the bank account to go up before it really feels real. Yeah, there's a cash flow lag for sure. You get paid the writers today and you may not see revenue for that for months. Exactly. So we wanted to see the bank account go up a, a couple notches there before we actually wanted to commit any money out to people. So we did a lot of that writing. I think there's another component to the content creation process, which is obviously we have a number of posts and not all of them. Some of them have done nothing and some showed initial success. We note the ones that are showing initial success, and then we go and we refine them and optimize them. I know sometimes you like to ask folks about how they do their keyword research and whatnot. Ours is almost backward, where we start with the space we want to attack and put the post out. And then after it's live, we go to Google Search Console and do research there to see where we can optimize, if that makes any sense. Do you have an example of that? Well, I mean, I think the strategy is... Basically, there's the chart at the top of search consoles. What is that called, Alex? Yeah, like the, the performance for individual search queries or by page. Yeah, that's right. It's called the performance chart at the top, right? And then you can go and you can add an individual page into it. And so what we'll do is we'll go and we'll look and we'll add clicks, impressions, and position. And then you look to see where there's a lot of impressions and you don't have a lot of clicks because you're in the sixth or seventh position or you're in the 11th or 12th position. Those are kind of the magical positions where if you go and you just put that effort in and you kick yourself up a little bit, you get kind of a big bang ROI. Okay, so these are these are posts that you've already written and they're already ranking in Google. So Google says, hey, they're somewhat relevant to these keywords, but they haven't quite cracked the top three results. And so you say, okay, can I go back in and re- update, re-optimize this post for those certain keywords. And and to hopefully do that without cannibalizing whatever keyword is driving the, the bulk of traffic today. Yeah, I would say these are generally pretty additive <laughs> operations where we don't delete a ton. We, we maybe optimize it a little bit, but then we add a lot more. Yeah. And then, you know, one other, you, you sort of asked for examples. I'd say some of our keyword research is fairly speculative where there's actually no volume. So in terms of like the research component, we're not just looking up volumes for search queries and kind of writing against them. But instead, you know, we're sort of speculating, hey, we think this space, it just raised a lot of money. It seems like a, a durable space. And so maybe we should throw up a post there. And so we do. And then potentially it starts ranking for a couple of things that we anticipated. But as Healy mentioned, maybe we'll be on the second, third, fourth page for a bunch of queries that we didn't anticipate. And you can all, you can see all that in Search Console, which is really cool. And then, yeah, just spending the time and, and going back to the post to make sure that you're you're beefing up that piece of content with the queries that you're you're not quite ranking well yet for, that can be a really really fruitful exercise. So I'm digging into some of your stuff, Alex. Back in May, you've written 3,300 words on imperfect produce versus farm fresh to you, which Ahrefs says gets zero searches a month, like zero to ten. So. Does that page get any traffic? Does that drive any revenue for you? Is like, I mean, this is a beautiful looking post, comparison tables, images, all sorts of stuff. Must have taken a ton of time to create, yet the analytics tools say, look, nobody is searching for this. 
Yeah, that's a great example. So in some sense, that was maybe just kind of a personal space that I was interested in. I had discovered Imperfect Produce and, and basically became a walking advertisement for it, telling everyone about it. But we did notice, hey, they just raised a $20 million Series A. And and actually, it's it seems like an extremely viral growth trajectory. For instance, I personally have referred, say, 10 people, and they seem to be referring 10 people. <laughs> okay. So it seems like a space that was gaining a lot of traction, something that was both good for the consumer and good for the market, good for the earth. And we started to notice some other competitors prop up. So to your point, there was, there was zero searches and maybe kind of the keyword planner, but we saw some momentum there and figured that people would be comparing that. It's not getting hundreds of, of hits a day, but I'd say it's getting dozens of hits a day. So the lifetime value of, of somebody who orders a subscription box it can be quite high if it's a staple like food. And so the payouts tend to be pretty good as well. Yeah, but I do think that is an example of one of our, we've taken a swing for something that hasn't really come around the corner yet. And that one is not like a huge moneymaker for us. But if those sites take off, then yeah, it will be. We're actually working on another post because we've noticed quite a few other competitors come out in that in that exact kind of fresh produce box subscription space. So yeah, you know it, we're happy that we're we're happy that we got ahead of the curve on that one, but it might not be ROI positive at this point. <laughs> okay, well it does rank number one, so you're sitting there, you're ready to capitalize on that on those searches when they do come. I can tell you this much though: some of our brands have done big TV ads, and we see a spike in traffic. And we can get make good money off of that. So to the extent that any of those companies decide to get into radio or TV or something like that, we're going to notice it. But that hasn't happened for those particular brands. And I, you know, I don't know if it will or not. That's also one of the things that if Alex or if I want to write about something because we're interested in it, we're going to do it. We like doing this stuff. It's fun for us. Yeah, it's finding that balance between what you're interested in, what the search volume might look like, what the affiliate payouts are, and then yeah, positioning yourself well for when these bigger awareness campaigns come around and then people want to compare their different options and they're looking for this review as content before they make their their final decision there. And Finn versus Finn is is positioned really well to do that. Tell me about your process for hiring and vetting writers. This is something that I've worked with with a handful of writers over the years and I'm still working on my process here. Yeah, well, so it was actually kind of a struggle in the beginning, not knowing where to turn. I think we we mostly just kind of looked to our network and tried to see if we knew anybody. But people are busy, and, and the best people always have have jobs, full-time jobs or, or things that they're working on that aren't yours. And so we started to look for different kind of more scalable ways to find writers. And one of the cool platforms that we found was called Endash. It's kind of a place where writer, freelance writers can go and create a profile and you can choose from them, maybe like the Amazon.com of, of freelance writers. And it's very hit or miss. Sometimes you find someone who's great, but my strategy has just been find someone who looks good, give them their first assignment, see how well they take some feedback. And if it's a smooth process, then then keep going. And if not, then kind of cut your losses. And over time, you, you sort of build like a, a stable of, of really strong content writers. Do you give them a pretty in-depth outline or do you say, hey, we want this article to compare these two products? Pretty high level. Here's what our site is about. Here's a couple examples of, of posts that we're looking for you to to write sort of in a similar way and, and adopt the same tone. But here's the brand or here is the the space we want you to, to write about. Then sometimes some of the more inquisitive ones will have questions to clarify, but for the most part, I'd say actually that's the sign of a good writer is that 
you don't have to give them a ton of instruction. They can look at one example, understand your your tone. Because if you are giving a lot of, if you're hand-holding your writers quite a bit, then I guess you can sort of expect that to be the experience moving forward. And that's sort of what we're trying to, to get out of, is the in the weeds, spending a lot of our own time. I think, I think we're something like three for 20 or something like that. So it's a low hit rate, but it's definitely worth it. Okay, that makes me feel better. <laughs> no, no, you've got you've to put a lot of chips on the table and you've got to be willing to copy edit everything. And that copy editing will let you see which folks you want to work with again. And so we have a, like, like a small core of people who were really pretty fantastic. And we've tried a lot of people who were not very good to marginal to just maybe not the right fit for us. I don't want, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody, but there's just varying sort of degrees of fit for what you're trying to do. And so if you're going to do it, I don't think you should expect that you're just going to spend a few hundred bucks and magically find a person. I think you need to spend a few hundred bucks times 10 to find one person. Yeah. What's a typical rate for you guys per article? It hovers between, say, $100 to $300. It kind of depends on the level of in-depthness that we're, the depth of the article, I should say, and potentially also just kind of the experience of the writer. And some of these products that these writers are reviewing are potentially sensitive or, or taboo products. We've talked about the, the hair loss stuff. You guys are reviewing products in the fertility space, the erectile dysfunction space. If you run into issues there, like, I don't want my name necessarily attached to this or I don't want to write this in the first person or how do you guys get around that? That's really funny actually. So most of the time in the early days it was Healy and I writing and we had our own personal qualms about that. Kind of signing signing up to be the spokesperson for premature ejaculation or something like that. <laughs> but actually a lot of our writers, because this is their livelihood, they actually ask me all the time, can you please make sure I get authorship and and that I'm credited for it. So yeah, I actually haven't had too much of a problem with that. I think in some sense they might just reject the, the assignment if they don't feel comfortable writing it. But if they do write it, they've tended to want to have their name on it. I mean, if you can't go to Google to search for one of these embarrassing health problems, where can you go? Right. That's what Google's for these days. <laughs> so that's the keyword research, not necessarily looking at search volume. That's the outsourced writing process in the 100 to $300 range per article. Again, it's paying upfront somewhat speculatively for some affiliate income down the road. Is there any other revenue streams from the site or is it all affiliate stuff? Yeah, pretty much all affiliate at this point. We've had brands kind of come to us with creative ways to to try and partner, but it hasn't materialized into something that really it's an affiliate site and that's that's the lion's share of revenue. You ever play around with display ads or is it just not the direction you want to go that's going to distract from the affiliate conversions? Yeah, in our experience, just kind of in reading about the space and, and talking to others who have prominent affiliate sites, it seems to us that the display revenue seems to be kind of a drop in the bucket relative to affiliate. And so obviously it's more passive and it's it's easier to just join a, a display network than it is to build these relationships with affiliates and, and negotiate better payouts and continuously improve conversion. But yeah, it's it hasn't really been super interesting to us. I think one thing that we we are interested in is is building more of an audience. And so whether that's through an email list or a social following, kind of building a returning group of people who care about Finn versus Finn and, and want to read our content rather than just coming to us on an individual query looking for a very specific answer to a very specific shopping question. Yeah, right now it seems very transactional traffic, right? I want to compare these two services and I got my answer and, and I'm off. And because the content is so varied, is there reason for somebody to subscribe, like to join the email list? Like what would be 
a compelling offer to, to subscribe? It's been tricky to figure that out. As an affiliate, you can sometimes offer readers an exclusive discount, and you can negotiate that with the brands that you work with. And we've seen that resonate with readers quite a bit. It feels like they're getting something that they wouldn't otherwise get anywhere else. And and so I think maybe offering them exclusive discounts, offering them brand sort of news and, and to stay up on the industry that they are showing interest in. That's been our best offer. I wouldn't say that it's really resonating with everybody, but we have been able to build some level of following and continue to get email subscribers that way. Okay. Yeah, that's that could be compelling. Like, hey, we've negotiated a grand total of $1,800 off, you know, the top 25 direct-to-consumer brands, like opt in and we'll send them to you right away or something. It appears at the moment that the business is almost entirely driven from search traffic. Like I'm on Finn versus Finn on Instagram, just a handful of followers over there. Is there a social media play either today that I'm not seeing or in, in the future? Or is it just like, hey, we're going heads down on the search engine stuff? One of the things that we're learning from Finn versus Finn.com is we are discovering which of these brands are investing heavily in growing their space or their brand name. And so there are some of these niches that are, I think, more interesting than others. And so a strategy that we'd like to pursue in the coming year would be to build or buy some niche-focused domains. So things that are really focused on particular items. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is pet care. Another one might be some of the direct-to-consumer cooking products. There are a lot of money has flowed into that space, and these companies are really interested in building brands. And I've gotten to try some of the products. They're really awesome. So building or buying a site and then doubling down and focusing on those niches. And I think that's where you can get a social following. That's where an email list is kind of a no-brainer. We've gone really broad, and it's enabled us to learn about pretty awesome spaces. And so now it's time to go kind of drill down into individual spaces using that learning, I think. So you're thinking you would start a separate site in the cooking space or the pet space, for example? Yeah, I mean, although, I mean, just call out to your uh, your audience, if anybody's got a recipe or cooking site that they've been running for the past five years is not making any money, I might be willing to buy it off you for a couple thousand bucks. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> An established domain, okay. Yeah, and same for pet stuff as well. I'm pretty sure that the pet space is going to continue to heat up. And I think that that's an area where you can build a real social following. And I think you can help Google understand what you're about if you niche into it. Yeah, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like a reasonable hypothesis that authorship matters a lot to Google, and that would be some indication of of authority in a space. So if you focus on just one niche, it may be easier for Google to think that you're authoritative rather than sort of spreading the seed and, and taking a scattershot approach the way that, that Finn versus Finn is oriented right now. Again, not a lot of scientific research to, to conclude that, but it seems like a, a reasonable theory. And so as we discover new niches that are interesting, it makes sense to potentially double down on them using a, a more hyper-specific site. Okay. So kind of following a similar strategy content-wise, but on a more niche domain or more niche to site. Yeah, exactly. You guys do anything with video, like video comparisons between different products? We have started to do that more and more. And our small amount of data is indicating that both Google and people like that a lot. Is that you in front of the camera holding up the boxes and talking about the products? Like, how do you do that? Is that screen share or... That's mainly what it is. Some of them, I'll go through the buying process online. So use an app called Loom to record my browser. And then other times it's interspersing that with 
pictures I've taken of the products or opening up the boxes and things like that and talking about the different attributes and side effects and price points and things like that. Are you doing that primarily to beef up the content on the article pages or are you seeing traction directly on YouTube? No, the the traction's coming through the pages. Again, it's tough with the limited amount of data, but I'm pretty sure that if you have the right type of video on the page that people are engaging with, that's helping Google understand that folks like that page and kind of sending you more traffic. It's helping you in the rankings. Sure. Anything proactive on the link building front or is just all the effort (laughs) spent on creating the content and hopefully attracting links naturally? It's been a challenge for us to, to get really high quality links. You know, I think it's important just to write really useful content that people want to link to, and that's maybe the best way to get links. And we've had some success with the brands themselves linking to us if they deem that the review is really awesome and and positions them in a a good light. Yeah, I don't know. I I think we haven't necessarily cracked the code on, on backlinking, and it hasn't been a major focus for us up until now. I think our strategy has been pretty similar to a lot of folks. One, we we use Haro like everybody else. I know other people on your podcast have recommended that before, but that's a great way to kind of get going. Sure. This is help a reporter out. Yep. And so I definitely recommend that. We do have what we call pillar pages, which are in-depth discussions of particular industries that we like. And some of those are starting to attract some links. So our top direct-to-consumer brands page is slowly getting links. And once that gets enough going on, we can use that to shape the link strategy and like the internal link strategy. And then you know, trying to get some guest posts and things going. But I think the most exciting one and the, the thing I would take away is if you're the first person to write a good review about a product for a new company, they are likely to tweet that or feature it on Facebook or something like that and then potentially link to it off their site trying to be the first person to get your hands on something and talk about it actually can help you get a link from that brand. But it's hard. I don't think anybody has a great solution for getting links. Yeah, no, this is the bane of all SEOs. It's the hard work. It's it's easy to sit down in front of the computer and pound out content, but it's like, oh, who's going to who's going to link to this, especially like some random posts on erectile dysfunction medicine, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a lot of people want to be the endorser of that one. Sure. How about in the search results themselves in terms of going after featured snippets? Anything, I mean, that's a hot topic in SEO right now. Anything you guys are doing proactively to win those featured snippets? We've noticed that we've been featured and it's like a huge boon and we're really excited and then it may not last forever. So, you know, it hasn't been necessarily a huge focus for us to to try and and win and maintain because they feel sort of ephemeral. But yeah, in general, you know, I think what we found to work is just breaking up your content quite a bit more. So you know what you want to talk about, but how you structure it is obviously important to Google. And so if you maybe have a headline in H2 or in H3, specifically targeting the question that you that you want Google to feature your snippet for, that has been somewhat helpful. Definitely not, haven't cracked the code on it, but that seems to be the, the main thing that works. Yeah, I think clustering your content. So I, I like trying to win the featured snippets just because I think it's fun. So obviously I've got some weird personality flaw, but I enjoy doing that type of thing. So late at night when there's something stupid on TV, I'll be on my computer kind of looking at our main search results and seeing where there's featured snippets. And then I'll go and I'll screw around with the content to try to try to get there. And I, I think we've had a fair amount of success. That's when you know you've really been bitten by the side hustle bug. when <laughs> You can't stop thinking about it. Exactly. I don't know how passive of income it is when you're missing a rerun of Seinfeld for it, but that's kind of my life. But what I try to do is I try to get like an H1 or an H2. First of all, they're almost always questions, right? 
So I try to have an H1 or H2 that's directly addressing that question. You can try to win it in like a paragraph format, a table format, or a bullet format. And you have to decide what the right answer is. But if, if you're losing to someone else's featured snippet, it, it probably makes sense to go with whatever that format is. And so if it's a paragraph format, you want three, maybe four sentences, and you got to really super specifically answer that question. Like really clearly answer the question. Don't beat around the bush or, or use any kind of weird adjectives or anything. Like answer the question. If you have numbers, put numbers in it. I really like going for bullets or numbered lists. So H2, H3, one short sentence explaining that you're about to answer the question in a bunch of bullets, and then you bullet it. And then finally, having an optimized image somewhere near that cluster, that content cluster. So the name of the image, the alt tags and everything are basically as close to the answer to that question as you can get. Like That's how we've gotten our featured snippets that haven't just been by accident. So that's the strategy. Okay. And you found that doing that, you were able to go out and kind of conquest ones that are being occupied by other sites right now. So if we are in the top couple slots and somebody else has got the featured snippet, I can often get it with that strategy. But if I can keep it or not is another question because the people on the other end are not stupid and they're making modifications too. So maybe it's a thankless task. I happen to enjoy it right now. Maybe in six months, I'll be annoyed by it. So <laughs> It's like SEO uh, whack-a-mole. Exactly. <laughs> but I think if you cluster the content and it's a, it's a question, you're answering a question, make it super clear to the reader and to Google that you're answering that question. The other thing I'd say about feature snippets is that obviously it's the first thing people see and it dominates a lot of the real estate at the top. But if people aren't clicking through to your result, then maybe that's still really good for the searcher, but it's it's not good for you or your revenue. So maybe adding something that answers their question, obviously, but also entices them to to learn more is important if affiliate dollars are what you're after. Gotcha. A little bit of copywriting at play there. Say like, here's a tease and to learn more, click here. Well, so I mean, one of the advantages we have is we do have featured deals with a lot of these players. So we can say normal pricing is this. Through us, you get the discounted pricing. Click here to get it. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. So you mentioned some of these perhaps spin-off sites, building the email list, building the social following. Where do you see this going? Or what's what's next for Finn versus Finn? I think, yes, as Healy mentioned, I think kind of building a portfolio of sites is definitely the next sort of dream of ours. So yeah, shout out again if anybody is is looking to get to offload their site, potentially we could be interested. Yeah, and then beyond that, just building up, finding more areas that are profitable and fun to write about. Honestly, it started as kind of just a, a passion project and a fun way to stay in touch and again, try and make $5,000 in, in passive revenue. At this point, we're just improving and it's all just kind of icing on the cake. I think we've we've achieved the goal that we set out to achieve. And, and now if we can continue to grow it, that that feels really good. Are you taking any of this cash off the table or are you just reinvesting it all into content and growth? We're still in trying to decide that, actually. It's kind of all happened so quickly that we we haven't made any hard and fast decisions. Definitely reinvesting into the business, but in terms of how we want to keep it either in the bank account or sort of pay ourselves some portion of it every year. As we look to sort of build out a portfolio of sites, I think having some cash on hand to make those investments is really important. Exactly what percentage we decide to take home or reinvest or, or sort of leave available for investments, I think that's something that Healy and I have to decide. Yeah, this could be super boring, but we've organized as an LLC. And so it's a pass-through entity. So we're going to have to take some money out to pay taxes. But I, I think that we're going to try to grow this business. 
I don't know that it needs all the money that's in the bank account to really grow. I mean, it might if we want to acquire a big site and it's possible that I'm overconfident, but we started this from nothing and it's doing pretty well. And I'm pretty sure that we could start a couple other things from very little and at least get a few of them to a point where we're pretty proud of it. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most exciting takeaways from this is like to create something from nothing in 12 months and have it be doing 20 grand a month in revenue is insane. Like it's the wild, wild west, right? This didn't exist. And now it's like a, a serious operation. Do you have an estimate of the time that you're investing into it these days, right? We talked about the allure of passive income or, you know, 11 o'clock at night, passive income, working on this stuff. I'm curious about the, the time investment at this point. I'm pretty passionate about it. And so I don't have a lot of FOMO around missing out on things other than maybe new opportunities with Finn versus Finn. So I think I'm lucky that way, potentially, where I don't see it as a burden or really as work. But I would say I spend probably, I come home from my actual day job and I make dinner and I probably spend a, f- a few hours a night on it. And then on weekends, if I, if I get a nice block of time, my girlfriend would probably say all day, but I would say maybe half day. So it's still, it's still quite a bit of time, but it's, it doesn't really feel like work at this point. And I probably dedicate a day a week to it. The way that my job works is that I have days where I don't have any real job. So I, I do this for a day and then I will not do anything for a few days and then do a few things at night. And then the following week, I'll have a full day that I'll dedicate to it. So that's really not super passive income, right? Because that's a right. <laughs> full day of work that I could have been getting paid. But I mean, the search results and the traffic and the affiliate income, like all that stuff, like you didn't have to physically be standing behind the keyboard to make that happen at that time. So that's the exciting stuff. So again, Alex and Healy from finversusfin.com. Check it out. Uh, again, the modern comparison shopping site. They've got a ton of awesome content over there, especially if you're interested in any of these uh, direct-to-consumer brands. But let's wrap this thing up with your number one tips for Side Hustle Nation. And uh, we'll let uh, Alex go first on this one. Yeah, absolutely. I've been a huge fan of Side Hustle Nation forever. So I just have to kind of get that out there. And I've learned a ton listening to your podcast. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for tuning in and, and putting this stuff into action. Yeah, no, it's it's been awesome. I guess my, my I sort of have a, a two pieces of advice. One is just be extremely persistent. And this is by no means my first side hustle. I've had many with with sort of meager or, or no success and they all kind of die because I decide that they die but theoretically if I had kept going they they could be successful and so yeah just kind of continuing to pound away and, and be really persistent in whatever you're pursuing and then to that same end I, I guess the way that I feel I feel very lucky to have met Peely and to have him be just as dedicated to this as I am and so really I think in the same vein of trying to to stay at it and be persistent and stay focused, finding a partner that you can work with, that you trust, that makes it fun and keeps your head up during during the downturns as well. That has been really, really critical for the success of Finn versus Finn. And and so, yeah, I, I'd say don't, don't go at it alone. Okay. So my number one tip for Side Hustle Nation would be to work with a partner. Start it with somebody who you really like and respect and someone who you know can really get stuff done. Working with Alex on this has just been awesome. We were work friends and and now we're like an amazing partnership here. There's no way we could have succeeded like this with without him and me working together on it. It's just so awesome. It's really motivating when Alex goes and does something that's super cool or moves the needle. It makes me want to go do that too. So that that's really motivating. And then just because we have two sets of hands, we can divide and conquer and we can focus on the parts of it that we really like and and keep making the site bigger and better. 
Well, there you have it. Persistence plus partnerships. Thanks so much, guys. And we'll catch up with you soon. All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Alex and Healy. Number one is to follow the money. One thing that was interesting to me in this call was Alex and Healy's strategy of following the money. By that, I mean, they're proactively looking at the direct-to-consumer brands that are raising venture money and then creating content around those brands with the understanding and perhaps the speculative assumption that some of those dollars are going to go toward marketing and brand awareness. And those things are ultimately going to lead to more Google searches about that brand. And when those searches come, Finn versus Finn is going to be there, ready to capitalize. That's a bit of a different content strategy than we've heard lately, where it's more often about looking for the existing search volume and competitiveness. Instead, these guys are taking the uh, Wayne Gretzky approach of skating where the puck is going instead of where the puck is, and they're trying to be ahead of the curve. So that was interesting takeaway number one for me. Follow the money. Takeaway number two is to think about content structure. I'm talking about easy-to-digest paragraphs, comparison tables. Healy called it creating, quote, content clusters, short little segments within your content that answer a specific question. This stuff makes it easier for Google to digest your content, but it also makes it easier for users to digest the information and make their decision. And it's that decision, provided they take action through your affiliate link, it's that decision that gets you paid. So that's takeaway number two, to think about that content structure, making it easy to digest. Takeaway number three is that everything is negotiable. We didn't spend a ton of time on this, but there was a soundbite from Alex where he essentially said, if you're taking the standard off-the-shelf affiliate program terms, you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table, especially if you can start to drive higher volumes. I think that was a tremendously valuable nugget because I've seen firsthand how sometimes a few short emails can sometimes add hundreds or thousands of dollars to your bottom line, understanding that everything is negotiable. Like Alex and Healy talked about, it's about building relationships with those affiliate managers, understanding what metrics are most important to them, and then driving quality leads and customers and making win-win deals. But the off-the-shelf terms, like Alex said, are usually extremely conservative, so understand everything is negotiable. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in 2020 in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.